a word, America. If I were to ask you a question, America is like, and ask you to finish that, how would you do that? Some of you might say it's like an old battleship that had some great guns at one time, but they, they've kind of been rusty. They've rusted and they've fallen. It had a great motor one time, maybe even a nuclear motor, but some bad engineers caused it to fail. And now this battleship is slowly, maybe not so slowly, going underwater. Some of you might say America is like a moldy piece of cheese. All you got to do is cut off the outside and it's still good to eat. I know you've done that. I know, you, I know those of you have families. That's in your refrigerator, that moldy piece of cheese. Maybe some of you think it's like a sports car. Except that sports car is on a used sales lot with a shady salesman. And those of you who buy cars know that you better look under that hood because there's a blown gasket and you're not going to get what you pay for. Others of you might say, America is like a chair, my favorite chair in the living room. It's got a few lumps, but it's still good for many, many years. I don't know what you think of America or your opinion, but I say those things to get you to think of the comparison. America serves as sort of a kingdom, doesn't it? It's a nation. And those descriptives are exactly what we see here in Matthew 13. Our author, Matthew, records Jesus saying, The kingdom of God is like. And he gives us certain things that it's like. I think we need to hear these words today about the kingdom and its likenesses because often we forget what this kingdom is like. We need reminders. Shoot, now that I have a baby, I often forget where I put my phone, where I put my wallet. I forget, like my, my wife said, if my head wasn't attached, I couldn't find it. Okay, We forget in life, don't we? So for some of this, this is going to be a reminder what the kingdom of heaven is like. For some of you, this will be a first time. And for you, this would be a joyful experience. No matter whether we fall on those who have heard it before or not, I think we need to hear these words because we forget. We also need to hear them because it's a difficult subject for us in some ways. And it's good to be reminded of the truth of Scripture about the kingdom of heaven. Some passages, I have to confess, are more difficult than others. Last time I spoke on Philemon, that's a pretty easy book. This, not so much. We're going to do a little more heavy exegesis here. It's not a simple parable. It's not a simple section of parables at all. And so we need to look a little more carefully at what the text says to us. Today we're faced with a task in this passage, but I'm going to hopefully lead you through. Maybe I'll give you one thing you can remember, maybe three, maybe by the grace of God, five. Whatever it is, I hope that it's valuable for your life today. See, in this passage today, we're going to see three qualities of the kingdom of heaven. Three qualities. First, we're going to see that the kingdom of heaven is greatly valuable. Second, we're going to see that it's offered widely. And third, we're going to see that it is life-changing. Let me repeat those. First, we're going to see that the kingdom of heaven is greatly valuable. Second, that it is widely offered. And third, that it is life-changing. Now... As we look at these verses again, I want to give you some setting. First of all, in these parables, it's just the disciples. Jesus has told three parables at the beginning, and now it's just his disciples. The audience is key for us to remember as he transitions from public parables to an explanation to his disciples. But here, we have a set of parallels here. 
scholars call it a fancy name. Just think of parallels. We have parallels in this passage. It begins at the beginning of Matthew 13 with the sower. And that is parallel at the end to our final parable here of this householder who brings out treasure. We have a second parallel here, and that is of the weeds, which is parallel to, you guessed it, here, the net. And we have then in the middle of this passage two parallels right next to each other. The mustard seed and the yeast with the same meaning, and then the treasure and the pearl with essentially the same meaning. You can see in this structure that the middle portions are the primary highlighted things. All of it kind of builds to that. Okay, we're going to be focusing then on the last half. But just remember, and maybe for your further study this week in your devotions or in your time you have questions, you can go back and compare the last half to the first half because they have contained in them basically the same meaning. Slight differences, but the same meaning. Now, we're going to tread on some interesting water here when we talk about the kingdom of heaven. And I I like to think of it kind of this way. A kindergarten teacher was walking around her classroom while their students drew pictures, okay? One little girl was so intently writing on her paper that her teacher just had to go see what she was drawing. She looked over her paper and she asked, what are you drawing, sweetie? And the little girl said, I'm drawing a picture of Jesus. And the teacher was like, oh, sweetie, I'm sorry, but no one really knows what Jesus looks like. And the girl said, hold on, I'll show you in just a minute. Now... I say that kind of foot and mouth, okay? I'm going to give you a brief definition of the kingdom of heaven. Take it or leave it, but I think these are things that both camps, so both those who may not believe in a literal thousand-year reign and those who do can agree on some characteristics of the kingdom of heaven in Scripture. First, why are we tackling this? Well, Matthew 13, all of these begin with the kingdom of heaven is like. So it's six times in this chapter, so it's very important for us to understand what this kingdom of heaven is. It's a theme in Matthew because it's a Jewish gospel. And the Jews were certainly looking forward to the kingdom that had been promised them. I think the best way to think about this at the beginning is a heavenly kingdom. A heavenly... Use that word as an adjective. What kind of kingdom is this? Well, it's not an American kingdom. It's a heavenly kingdom described by God and what that all entails. A heavenly kingdom kingdom. So that's the start of what I want you to be thinking about with this. Then also we have to understand that the kingdom of heaven is not just a person in Jesus. It's not just Jesus Christ, though he himself is the king. It's not just a people that he rules over. It's not just a place. I think the kingdom of heaven, where we miss the target so often as Americans, we love to say, oh, it's only this thing. Or, oh, it's only this other thing. No, the kingdom of heaven is all of these. It's a person, Jesus. It's a people, all of the redeemed, for all of time, and it is also a place. Now, we may disagree on where that place is, but certainly we can say that there is a place. In eternity, it's certainly with Jesus. So we have a person, a place, and a people. It is the righteous life. It's so interesting how our worship service oftentimes coincides and adds to the beauty and majesty of our entire morning together. It was cool that we read from Romans 14 about the kingdom of heaven is what? Righteousness, peace, and joy. It's interesting that these abstract concepts can be found in Jesus. And I think here that Paul puts it so well that it's not... It it is Christ. 
He is the most valuable thing in the kingdom, but it doesn't just end there. He brings with him, as we heard in Zechariah last time, the kingdom comes with Christ. Remember that, what what Tom said last time? You don't get the benefits of the kingdom without Christ, but he brings peace and joy and righteousness with him and to the people of the kingdom. And so Paul puts this well when he's thinking about this blessing we have in Christ. In Romans 8.32 it says, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? I think this can be applied to the kingdom of heaven. So I'd like you to remember as we go on and delve into our text at hand, these concepts that it is a person, a people, and a place. All of these things are considered when we think about the kingdom of heaven. Now, into our text. First, the first quality is infinite value of the kingdom of heaven. Let me tell you a true story that was released this year. It's really crazy. It's the stuff of dreams. But it's real. I actually, like, the first time I read this story, I went and Googled it because I wasn't sure that someone wasn't making this up. And so I, like, checked, like, five sites. And it's true. So here we go. On February 25th, Rare Coin Experts, Kagan's Incorporated, announced that a treasure of over 1,400 rare U.S. gold coins had been discovered buried on private property in California's gold region. The treasure was found by a couple on their property while taking their dog on its daily walk. That was an awesome walk. It is believed to be the greatest buried treasure ever unearthed in the United States, with an estimated value over $10 million. What's really significant about this find, noted Donald Kagan, Ph.D., president of this company, is that this one included a variety of dates stamped on the coins, many of which are in pristine condition. Add to that a wonderful human interest story, walking a dog and finding it on private property. This family literally found the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. So this is a modern-day example of exactly what's going on in this parable. So if you'll read again with me here, verses 44, 45, and 46. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. Hello, what we just read. Which a man found and hid, and from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls, and upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now, one commentator says this is something like winning the lottery, but I don't play the lottery, (laughs) and I assume most of you don't either. This is much more likely than playing the lottery, too. The odds of this in ancient Israel were actually relatively, one commentator says, maybe one in a thousand. That's pretty good odds, right? We know winning the lottery is like one in millions. Why is that? Well, in ancient Israel, what would happen is, as enemies came in, and this was a war-torn land, people would leave their treasure in the ground. You can't carry it with you. This is not our modern-day society. We don't have an SUV in ancient Israel that we can load up our couch and, like, our TV and our computer. No, like, there was nowhere to put it. And if you carried it, guess what? Guess what's going to happen? That enemy's going to come. He's going to track you down and kill you. (laughs) Because, A, you have valuable things, and C, or, and B, you're slow. Okay, so they would hide their treasure in the ground. Okay, this was not not uncommon to life. Like we've heard from Bob and Tom, a parable tells a situation that could happen and likely has happened to the people he's telling it to, or they know of someone. And now you know of someone, these people in California, that this happened to as well. It's interesting here, we see in the text here, it says that which a man 
found and hid and from what? This is so beautiful from what we heard this morning. From joy. He went out. This is not... If you found that treasure, would someone have to like make you like get it? They'd be like, man, you better pick that up. Now I asked my wife what happened, what would happen if I just kind of left that treasure there last night and she says she'd probably like hit me or, you know, kick me out of the house for a while or something. I don't, I don't know. She would be angry. She'd think I was an idiot. The point of it is, look, it's from joy. The treasure is not going to make, it's not a duty to sell everything. You know what you're getting. It's of infinite value. The meaning of joy, of the reality here, ties in, importantly, because I guess a question I have when I come to this text, and you should have as well, is why does Jesus have to tell the disciples about joy? Aren't they looking forward to a kingdom already? Aren't they joyful in what's going on already? I think that's a question we have to ask, like, they're following him, man. They're pretty, they're pretty excited, I would say. They've seen him do miracles, right? He's done things that would produce joy. But I think here there are three things that we should notice both in the previous and following text why he needs to tell them about this joy. I think he's preparing them for rejection long-term and short-term. Look at verse 53 with me. It says, And it came about that when Jesus had finished these parables, he departed from there, and coming to his home, he began teaching them in their synagogue Now, do you know what happens at the end of this story? They reject him. He goes to his hometown, and he's rejected. So the very next section, yeah, we see rejection. What happened at the end of Jesus' life? He was killed. And he said to his disciples, if they killed me, likewise, they will do to you. So I think he's preparing them for the rejection and telling them, hey, this is really valuable. And Matthew obviously heard that, didn't he, and recorded it here. I think he's preparing them for difficulties. We heard some great testimonies of the difficulties of life earlier this morning, didn't we? But in the midst of difficulty, we can still have joy in the kingdom of heaven. And I think he also knows the misunderstanding of the disciples of the nature of the kingdom. Um, One of you, I think we were at breakfast on Wednesday, and John had a note in his Bible. When the disciples say, yes, we understood, he said, just to add in parentheses, no, they really didn't understand And so there's this mix of, yeah, I understand. Yeah, but not really. We'll talk about that in a second. But I think here, he's preparing them for the future. There is real joy, but it comes in the midst of difficulties that they're going to experience. And so Jesus wants to remind them, as well as us, about the true joy that can be had in the kingdom of heaven. So the second half of this dual parallel here is the costly pearl. They have the same five elements, right? Something valuable, someone who finds it, a buying, a going, and a selling. All those are there. But in the second one, if you look with me, what is the difference here? Well, this one, this parable, the merchant is actually seeking fine pearls. And I think this is to illustrate the fact in life that surely there are two different kinds of people. You hear testimonies all the time of people whom... In their life, God brings a great calamity and they trust the Lord. I think it was Dan who told me that this man who gave this testimony, that was how he trusted the Lord. Then there are others who are drawn slowly. Both are by the Spirit of God, but there may be, this may be the important point here that there are kind of those who are, oh, hey, I found it. There are others, oh, I'm looking for it and then I find it. I think that may be the point here. So, 
as we think about then the relevance theologically and in our lives to these parables. We are inclined to say that a person who walks away from $10 million of treasure is what? An idiot or a fool. Wouldn't we say that? My wife said that of me. I see heads, yes. Yes, and I, you know what? I would be (laughs) if I walked away from that. But sadly, many do that with the gospel. And it is of more value, of infinitely more value than $10 million, than $100 million, than whatever number, a trillion, I don't know, the highest number. It is of infinitely more value than that. Jesus himself is the answer to all of our individual, community, family problems. And the gospel he preaches brings peace and righteousness. And despite that, millions walk away from him. The kingdom is of value because of the king and his qualities. And I want to touch on something that Tom said last week. We have such a valuable kingdom and a king that he would come die for us and he is jealous for us. Isn't that amazing? Like we have a... Look, no one's died for me in my life. I don't think anyone's died for you other than Jesus in your life. Now, I may be wrong. There may be the small percentage of someone here at CBC. We are kind of a unique body here. So someone maybe has sacrificed their life for you, but I I don't think so. We have a God who is so jealous for you and me and for our affections that he came himself and died for us. That's one of the points that stuck with many of us from last week's sermon. And I think it bears relevance here. Let me read to you a couple passages as well from Scripture about the value of the kingdom. It says in Psalm 84:10, For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Wow, that is the value of the king and kingdom we have. And then the famous Philippians 3 passage. But whatever gain I had, I counted his loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing value or worth of knowing Christ. Brothers and sisters, these people in these parables made the deal of their life. Did they not? They made the deal of their life, and so is it with us when we look to Christ. So is it with us when we put the value that is ascribed to him and his kingdom above all else. Certainly, we make the deal of eternity. Just like these men in this parable. The kingdom of heaven is worth infinitely more than the cost of discipleship. Those who know where the treasure lies joyfully, note that joyfully, abandon everything else to get it. And so, my exhortation to you today is to pursue that kingdom of infinite worth. My exhortation to you today is to pursue that kingdom. That's the first thing I want to ask. And of myself. This is not just to you. We all ought to pursue that kingdom because it is of inestimable value. See, the problem is, as one brother put it to me on Wednesday... We often clench our hands so tight around the treasures of the world. We've got no room. We've got no room in our hands for the treasure that is the kingdom of heaven. And what does that tell us? When we have our hands clenched around that, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's a house. Maybe it's your children. Maybe it's your marriage. I don't know. But what, what happens when we do that? 
we have no room for the kingdom of heaven and what it brings. And therefore, we miss out on the joy of that. Our peace will never come from the gods of this world. It will never come from the gods of this world. Everything you hear, and here's, here's part of the problem. Everything you hear in the world today screams that Christianity is not worth it, doesn't it? What about the Middle East? Is it pleasant to be a believer in the Middle East, in the lands of ISIS today? Kerry showed me, or told me about, a video he watched of a man who was asked to recant from Christianity. Sadly, he did, and then they cut his head off anyway in the Middle East. That screams Christianity is not worth it, doesn't it? How about this situation in Houston? How many of y'all have heard of that? What's going on with the subpoenas in Houston? Yet, is it easy... Does it seem valuable to be a Christian there? Certainly not. It seems difficult. How about those of you who are in middle school or in high school or in college and face constant bullying because of your Christianity? That that screams that this kingdom is not valuable, at least from a world's perspective. There are children in India. I've heard a story about boys in India who are um, taunted and bullied and made fun of and ridiculed because they won't look at pornography by both students and teachers. That's a difficult situation. That screams that it's not valuable. Not only that, we have scholars that are telling us that the Bible is full of myths. We have evolutionists who scream at us on the billboards and on our TVs and commercials that Christianity is false. Add to that our flesh, <laughs> which will pull us down in our greatest moments and threaten to drown us in the worst of times. But I'm telling you today that if we rightly esteem the kingdom of God, it is worth more value than all of those things. It is so valuable that it is worth it to sacrifice anything to get like these men did. Sometimes, look, sometimes God calls us to give up our literal lives. That's probably not the case for most of us here. Other times he calls us literally to sell all of our possessions. That's probably not the case for anyone here either. But he always calls us to give up anything that stands in the way of wholehearted allegiance to Christ and to the priorities of the kingdom. Isn't that what we see here? These men are rearranging their priorities. Matthew, or excuse me, Hebrews says that if we fix our eyes on Jesus, that's what we ought to do. That's another text that mirrors what's going on here. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. And the reality is, brothers and sisters, we already have this possession if we know Christ. We have it. We just need to esteem it that way. The second thing I think we see here in this passage is a wide offer. So first, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, interchangeable, is of infinite value, and we are to pursue that. Secondly, it's offered widely. Now, this is a funny example. I think it's funny. It's a little out there, so follow with me. Have you ever seen American Idol? You ever seen American Idol? You'd, those of you who have don't want to raise your hands because it might be embarrassing. Okay. How about The Voice? Thank you. Thank you, Steve. How about The Voice? I know my father has seen The Voice, okay? I know that there are people here who've watched The Voice, okay? Both of these shows, okay, they offer this audition to the entire United States, right? They offer it and they go out there and they find people who want to be a part of this audition. Now, the analogy breaks down a little bit, but these people, okay, 
are all of them qualified? <laughs> qualified? Are all of them going to be accepted? I mean, if I went to addition on The Voice, do you think I'd make it? My wife, yeah, she's laughing because I certainly would not, right? You, I'm sure some of you have seen the, what they call fails on The Voice or things like that, where people just are ridiculous. They're there for the publicity. My point here is that those shows offer widely, but few are accepted. Those shows offer an audition widely, but very few are accepted. In fact, even those who are really good sometimes get cut, right? Now, I think when we come to our passage here, which we're going to read, there's some similarities, right? I'm trying to give us, wrap our mind around our current culture with the text as well. Let's read 47 through 50. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea and gathering fish of every kind. And when it was filled, they drew it up on the beach and they sat down and gathered the good fish into containers, but the bad they threw away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels shall come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous, and there will be weeping, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The second quality of the kingdom of heaven is its wide range of offer. It catches many. Now, this is not the church. So we're not talking about within the church. We're talking similarly like the, the field that is sown. There are weeds that grow up in that field. We're talking about the world here and the wide offer to everyone. Some are thrown away. I believe that, again, is not the church, but it's the world. And it's those who do not value the kingdom. And again, here we see in 49 and 50 that a clear sorting out of judgment happens at the end. Not now, not during Jesus' time on his first advent, but the second time, his coming again. Now, this is a rather difficult passage for me to preach because it really, it should move each of us to tears when we think about this. That in the end, there is a judgment and some will be condemned to what it says here in the text, eternal damnation. I think we can see that there's two sides of the same coin here. There's an interesting juxtaposition, an interesting matching of text here. There's a hidden treasure, something of great value that brings joy. And then there is this judgment, this rejection that brings untold of suffering and punishment upon those who reject the kingdom. I think there's fear here, and rightly so. One commentator says this, The fear motive is often condemned by modern Christians, but the book of Matthew shows Jesus was not opposed to using it properly. As sad and frightening as it is, some will reject Jesus, and in turn they will be rejected themselves. Now, God has graciously given us time to repent, has he not? In this life. And he says in, to us, through Peter, in 1 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with us, with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But friends, there will be a judgment day. And I think the disciples, as well as us sitting here, both those who know Christ and don't know Christ, do well to do this, to reflect on our situation with regard to the kingdom. Are you a part of the kingdom or are you on the outside? I think that may be the question the disciples were asking. 
And it's a question we ought to ask of ourselves. If your answer to that question is, I don't know, (laughs) or I'm not, this text here has much to say to you. It tells you about your history, or your future. (laughs) It tells you about your future. And it says of condemnation and judgment. If your answer to the above questions is, man, I want to do that, I, I want to be in the kingdom, but I don't know how, then read the word of God and ask one of the lovely people here in this body. Certainly they'd be happy to tell you about how you can be in that kingdom. It's by faith in Christ alone. If your answer to the above question is, you know, what about this kingdom and what is my part in it? I struggle. If you say, I struggle to value it rightly, then my exhortation to you today is pray. Because I too struggle, brothers and sisters. We all struggle with that. We all struggle to give God and His Son, Jesus Christ, and the people of God the value that they are due. If your answer to the above questions is, I am doing that, my exhortation to you is, keep on keeping on. Because that is true life. Valuing the kingdom. In reality, I think if we're honest, each of us can say that we found ourselves somewhere along that scale. Certainly each of us was apart from Christ at one time. And each of us struggles in our daily walk at some point in our life. So the second thing about this kingdom is that it's widely offered. And I think as believers and in this church now, we ought to reflect on that. For those who are in, it can bring great joy. Those who are out, it can bring great fear. Finally, I think we see in this passage, changed lives at the end. Now, that is my son. I figured in the first sermon after his birth, I ought to... You know, give a picture of him. No, I didn't think that. I thought, hey, this is a good example of changed lives. You know, Derek and I, recently, he took me out to Buffalo Wild Wings. And he just gave me some fatherly advice, which was much needed. (laughs) It was a little time away. But these little ones, and we've got a new one in the body here, with Cherian and me too, bring life change, don't they? Great life change, let me tell you. I am just thankful that I am here and awake this morning. Praise God for that, let alone that I am making any coherent sense to you and looking normal, (laughs) right? Many of you have been through that. (laughs) Yes. Okay, but it's life change. That's my, he has brought much life change to our lives, as many of you have experienced. Let's look at our text here. What life change is encountered when we value the kingdom of heaven. 51. Have you understood all these things? Yes, they said to him. And he said to them, therefore every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like a head of a household who brings forth out of his treasure things new and old. Now, this is probably the most difficult exegetically, theologically part of the passage. We're going to wrestle with it almost word by word here. But I think the main point of this, and I was talking to Leonard earlier about this, is life change. This person has had life change, and because of it, there's different action and different valuing for this person here in this parable. I think that's the key. But let's look at it, and I'll show you how I arrived here. I think the wording, a scribe who became a disciple, is important. I think that's because the wording is actually... Some, some translations will render it, you know, he is trained in the kingdom of heaven, but it's actually the word for disciple. So I think what he's saying is, now, look, the disciples have seen the scribes kind of fight Jesus. 
And so wouldn't this person, a scribe who actually follows Jesus, be like a big change in their life? I think that's the first thing we need to notice. A big change in life for this person, becoming from that scribe, okay? So in other words, someone who might be opposed to Jesus to following Jesus, a disciple. I think also here, the storeroom is important. What is that storeroom? Is it is Jesus literally referring to this big storeroom that everyone had in, in that time? I don't think so. First of all, you were lucky to have a one-room house. Second of all, it's used elsewhere to depict the heart. In Matthew 12, 35, just before this, it's used of the heart of man. In Luke 6, 45, it's also used of the heart of man. And so I think what Jesus is saying here is it's a changed heart who brings out of his heart new and old. The bringing out is also important. And that's what I... If you could... If you write in your Bible, you might write in this note here, instead of brings out, you might write is bringing out. There's this action that takes place because of a changed life. He's bringing out new and old. Okay, so we've got an action, we've got a changed person, a big transition, a change in life. We've got a heart change. We've got this action of sort of obedience or at least continuing on in what he's learned. And then we have this new and old. What are these things? This is actually rather difficult, and there are some different views. I've settled on one today. Next Sunday, if you talk to me, I might take another view. I feel like Bob a little bit here. But right now, I'm going to go through the different views and tell you what I think it means here. It could be the Old and New Testaments. What's the problem with that? There is no New Testament. That's right. So we could probably just throw that one out the window right away, even though famous people like Augustine, I would think I was reading, took that view. Probably not right. Old and New might refer to teaching. Uh, As in this, there was wisdom in the New Testament, but now we learn about salvation. In other words, the Old Testament really isn't that valuable, But now we can see, like, real salvation. But I think that's untrue. Because in this passage, Jesus is trying to relate some things that have to do with the Old Testament and bringing out truth from the Old Testament about the kingdom and themes. We don't have time to get into that. But I think that the point here is that, look, salvation was had for real in the Old Testament. People really did get saved in the Old Testament as well as the new. In our time as well as then. And so I don't think it's just wisdom and then this new kind of salvific knowledge. I think it probably refers to what Matthew means when he quotes Psalm 78 in verse 35. Read that for a second with me. It says in verse 35, so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the foundation of the world. These are not hidden things, actually. When you go to that psalm, what the psalmist is recounting is the history of Israel. It's not like hidden It's out there how they rebelled and then trusted in God and he was gracious to them. So it's not hidden things necessarily. I think what it is, is a new perspective from a changed life. A new perspective on old truth from a changed life. I think that is exactly what's going on here. When when we trust Christ or when we have major life-changing events, doesn't that kind of give us a new perspective on life? Man, all of you who are fathers and mothers... I have a new respect for you this morning. Let me just tell you that, especially of my parents. All you go through. Now, does that mean that somehow that is not true, what I heard earlier? No. It's a new perspective 
from experience and a changed life. I think that's what's going on here. So if that makes any sense, and I hope it does, I think that's what's going on here. Now, I think one of the keys for us here today, as we draw to a close, is that the kingdom of heaven is life-changing, and it asks us, he, I should say, and it, the concept of the kingdom of heaven, the king, the people, and the place, ask us to participate in it. It transforms not only our thought, like this person here, but also our doing, our going, our actions, because of that change of life. Now, it's interesting that that Paul records in 2 Corinthians 2.14, Thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. That's the key. One of the themes of Matthew, some of you probably know this, is following in the footsteps of the master, the king. And so this parable is no different. It's a challenge, I think Jesus is saying to the disciples, you ought to participate in this kingdom. And Paul echoes that in 2 Corinthians. We can participate. Some good quotes about this, though. Willpower does not change men. Time does not change men. Christ does. The question isn't today, were you challenged? The question is, were you changed? So let me ask you, has becoming a disciple of Christ changed your life? I don't mean just challenged. Has it changed your life? Has it changed the interactions you have? Has it changed your perspective on things? What has it changed about your life? That's a good question to think about, I think. Now, there's an old Afghani proverb, my sister told me, that there is movement... In movement, there is blessing. Okay? And Jesus said, blessed are we if we do these things. Okay? We cannot, it is not enough to hear these things about the kingdom. It is not enough to hear them. We must also be doers, as the Bible tells us. We must participate. I think here, sometimes commentators, how can I say it, sell the disciples a little short. Don't they? Now, many of them will say, these disciples were total idiots. But then we too would have to be called total idiots because we don't obey Christ all the time. I can think of multiple examples recently of where I did not follow him wholeheartedly. And so I don't think we should beat the disciples up when they say yes. I think we can maybe tongue-in-cheek laugh a little at them because that's our experience too. Like, man, Lord, I want to do these things. And the next thing we find ourselves sitting on the couch after two hours watching the same TV show. Like, man, what happened to me? Right? I think participating in the kingdom is evidence of a changed life, as this proverb tells us, or excuse me, parable tells us. What does that look like for you? What are some concrete examples of a changed life in action in your life, having the kingdom, valuing it? What does that look like for you? I think in difficulty, it means forgiving those who don't deserve it. Certainly we have those in our life. Maybe I'm one of those. For you, I don't know. (laughs) Loving and unloving husband. In the midst of a life of pain, and we have many here who live with pain, means loving kids, even though they don't deserve it. If your kids say, I hate you, saying I love you. In the midst of rebellion, it's showing grace. In the midst of a difficult job, it's being joyful because you value the kingdom of heaven. 
How about the joys of life? Man, it's reveling in new souls saved. We have that here. Praise God. And thank you for that testimony, Dan. That is one of the things that we can do that shows that we're participating in the kingdom of heaven. We can take joy in that. It's rejoicing in a happy marriage. It's looking forward at the end of a life well lived on this earth to meeting Jesus. That is one concrete thing we can do and encouraging those who have lived the life well. We have many of those in this body and many have meant much to me in my ministry. I think it is also kneeling in prayer to the God of heaven who has saved us and thanking him for that. I think it is maybe looking in the face of your children and seeing God's gift to you. And I think it can be as simple as thanking God for daily provision in your life. I mean food. By daily provision, I mean the food that's going to be on the table. Those are things that we can do that participate in the kingdom. Because oftentimes we look at big things. We're like, man, how can I participate? I'm going to go to Africa. Not that that is a bad thing, but each of us has our part in the kingdom today. Some specifics, and this hits home for me as well. If you're not involved in a ministry group at CBC, and I'm speaking to myself, (laughs) Jen and I have missed the last three or four, get involved. The elders have certainly set that forward as something we as a body ought to be doing. And many of us don't take that very seriously. There are also multiple ministries here. I'm sure Dan would love to have volunteers. In fact, I know he would. To help with the youth. We would love help with ISI. Even just prayer. There are many other ministries here that you can get involved in, let alone all of the daily things that you could do. But I think those are some specific ones. Here's another one. Teachers. That would be a good participation in the kingdom of heaven, showing that you value it. Would be teaching... And I know that it's difficult. I know Philip Johnson does it. I know Caleb Dean has done it. I know many of you have done it. That would be one good way to participate in the kingdom of heaven today. So, brothers and sisters, I think we see three qualities of the kingdom of heaven here. The first quality is that it is of infinite value. And our challenge then is to pursue that thing of infinite value. The second quality is that it is offered to many. And I think our challenge, like the disciples, was to reflect on that. To reflect whether we are in that kingdom or out of it, and to reflect on the joy that comes by being in that kingdom. And thirdly, I think this section gives us the quality of the kingdom of heaven that it is, that it changes lives, and that we are to participate. Let's bow before our Heavenly Father and ask Him to help us do these things. Because without His help, we would be useless. Lord, may you give us the grace to live as kingdom citizens. May we rightly value your son and his kingdom. And may that be lived out. May we reflect on the joy of being Christ and having that precious possession. May you give us the wisdom and grace to participate in that kingdom this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.